You know, before I became a Christian, um, I had two really big experiences in my life with Christian hospitality, and they were kind of two ends of a spectrum. The first was when I was invited to go ice skating in downtown Sacramento at the outdoor uh, skating rink, and uh, some Christians from the church I was kind of going to and kind of not, you know, all that kind of stuff, they invited me to go, and so I met at a person's house, and when I showed up at the house, I wasn't greeted. I was greeted by the mom, none of the people that invited me. And then when we decided to get in our cars, there's about 10 or 12 of us that were going. Everyone was kind of, I'm going with you, I'm going with you. And I was the odd man out. And so I had to sit, you know, in the back seat of like a Toyota Tercel, where it's like, it's not just back seat, it's like it's a two-seater, but then I was in the middle. And on the way there, I wasn't really talked to at all. I wasn't asked any questions. I was pretty much totally ignored. And even when I asked questions and tried to insert myself into a conversation, which any of you that know me as a very introverted person, like taking the, the step to actually say something is hard. And I did that and I was so proud of myself until they changed subject and just went on ignoring me. And then when we were ice skating, everyone was skating around and laughing and falling in, into each other's arms. But I was skating by myself. And then they decided to go get corn dogs and stuff. They didn't bother to tell me that they were going to do that. And then on the drive home, um, they were talking about how great of a trip it was and we should do this more often. I'm sitting there thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done and I will never do anything like this again. In fact, I remember specifically as I was driving through Davis, I thought to myself, now I, I just don't like Christian people. So then a couple weeks later, I was invited by some people in the same exact church who invited me to go play disc golf. You ever been disc golfing? If not, got to do it. So much fun. Never been before. So we were disc golfing. And uh, on the way there, outside of uh, Roseville area, we were driving there. The whole way there, we're talking. People asking me questions about my background, my family, sports, my thoughts about who God is and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, man, it's just totally different. And then they're telling stories about hilarious things that they did and the stupidity and humility that comes with it. It's just fantastic. While we're playing disc golf, they're trying to retrieve their discs from things. Dude fell into a creek. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what, what's going to happen? Like, what do, how do Christians react to stuff like this? And they're falling on the ground laughing and pointing at each other. And I'm thinking, these are my people. <laughs> and then we ate together, and it was just more laughter and more storytelling. They were asking me questions. They asked if they could pray for me. They dropped me off at my house. And I remember thinking to myself, I love Christians. And what was really interesting is over the years, I've thought about that. And uh, the one scenario made me feel so loved and appreciated. I felt recognized, valued. And the other experience, I felt so isolated, ignored, and unvalued. And what's really interesting is I look back on that time and, you know, I was able to Facebook stalk some of these folks and figure out where they're at in life now. And I realized that that first group that invited me ice skating, there's only one person of that entire group that still claims to be a Christian. And the other group, every single one of those men is now a Christian, is still walking with the Lord and is faithfully doing so. Some of them are pastors and elders in their church. And when I look at that, I just kind of go, wow, if there's ever been an experience for me on how hospitality is a signifier of what's going on in a person's life truly, it was those experiences. In a matter of months, I saw these people did not love, these people did. And remember what I read last week about 1 John 3. One of the evidences of whether or not the love of God is truly in you is exhibited in the way in which we love others. And what I would say is, look at your hospitality because that will be a clear indicator of where your heart is. We've talked about how hospitality, the notion of welcome is an essential part of it. How welcome is receiving someone into your life and into your space. It's highly relational. It's often messy. It requires sacrifice. Oftentimes it can be costly. And yet God commands it anyways. And he doesn't seem to really care about whether or not you're comfortable with it. But he says, seek to show hospitality and do so without grumbling or complaining. And then we remember that God promised to provide us with the grace and strength and resources we need to practice hospitality well. And so we remember Christ and because of Jesus and all that he's done for us. The fact that in Jesus we see a person 
who looked at the outcasts and the vulnerable, those who were weak and those who were isolated and those who were ignored and those who were the least of the society. It was specifically those people that Jesus looked at and says, I want you. I want you to come and be a part of what God is doing on the earth. I want you to be a part of this thing called the church. And so Jesus intentionally invited the vulnerable, the least, the last, and the lost. And he was constantly wooing people to himself. And in Jesus, we see grace, welcome, invitation, relationship, love, service, recognition, human dignity, sacrifice, healing. And above all, combining all these things, we have a tangible expression of this is how God loves you in Jesus. And so we said that a good definition for hospitality is to generously leverage our resources in loving service to others for the glory of God. That God has equipped us and given us so many different resources and we are to leverage or to use these resources in order to lovingly serve others for the glory of God. We are not to decide who the others are and make sure that we you know, have certain qualifications that they have to meet first. Instead, we just love and serve whoever. That's what it means to love our neighbors ourselves. And we do it all for the glory of God. We don't do it for our own glory. We don't do it to make sure that we have lots of followers on Instagram and people are jealous of how awesome our house looks and our spread and our food and what have you. We do it for the glory of God. And for me, this has been significant because I tend to be an introverted person I tend to get just worn out by people and being in relationship with people and having conversations with people just drains me quicker than anything. And I've had people say to me, Phil, I'm just not wired to be a hospitable person. And so I kind of feel like, you know, maybe God wants me to do something else. I said, no, no, that's not available to you. Here's the thing. Whatever resources you have, whether they are great resources or little resources, whether it's you have a lot of capacity for relationship or a little capacity for relationship, whatever it is you have, spend it. Just spend it. At the end of a Sunday, I'll just be honest with you, by the end of Sunday, I get home at night and I am absolutely spent. I can barely have a conversation with my wife when I get home. I am completely spent. And... I do so joyfully because I know Monday's coming and God will fill my supply. And so I will gladly through the week prepare, spend myself on Sundays, be filled back up on Monday. So whatever it is that you have to offer, spend it. Homes, spend it. Money, spend it. Emotional capital, spend it. Relationship, spend it. Food, spend it. Whatever it is. Leverage it for the gospel. We talked last week about how loving other peoples is, is really just an overflow of joy that happens in our heart that just flows out of us and extends to other people and the way we serve other people. Remember, we talked about hospitality being the connection between love and, and service. I was reading in J.D. Greer's book called Above All, and he writes this. He says, the beauty of the gospel is that those who trust in Jesus need never again fear alienation from God. In Christ, you are secure. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are whole. In Christ, you are chosen. In Christ, you are pure. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And now Christ has redeemed us from our sin to a life of love and service where we can reflect to others what Jesus has done for us. Simply by believing the gospel, God releases his power into us to make the love and service possible. God renews our minds in the gospel. Paul tells the Romans to transform us into, from sinful people into the kinds of people who accomplish the very will of God. And I love what he's saying here. He's saying, you know what? It's simply the belief in the gospel itself which will transform your heart, causing the love of God to flow into your heart and the joy of which will outflow from you to others. And it's just simply believing Jesus, repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus has rescued us from our sins. That very act itself is power, power to transform. That's why John Piper says there are very few joys, if any, 
greater than the joy of experiencing the liberating power of God's hospitality that makes us new and radically different kinds of people who love to reflect the glory of his grace as we extend it to others in all kinds of hospitality. And John Piper goes on to define love as the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. You see, we see needs of others around us. The question is whether we will meet those needs gladly or reluctantly. And the Bible tells us God loves what? A cheerful giver. And if we don't meet people's needs with gladness in our hearts, we have a question. What's going on? But the more we understand God's love for us, exhibited and displayed in Jesus, and we come to cherish that, that in our sin we were rebellious towards God and we were hostile towards God and we hated God and we sinned our brains out, that God yet in our hatred of him loved us, demonstrated in Jesus being sent to rescue us from our sin. And in rescuing us from our sin, he gave us new life. And that new life is to be exhibited in the way in which we love and serve others radically and joyfully and cheerfully and gladly. Because love is indeed the overflow of joy that we have in God. And it really does gladly meet the needs of others around us. And we see this exhibited in Jesus where he put, he put the interest of others before his own. Jesus laid down his life for others. He didn't have sin of his own for which he needed to die. He died for the sin of others. And yet we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Now just think about this. This text says that Jesus was seeking joy, and that is why he endured the cross. And yet the Bible also tells us that Jesus was not looking to his own interest, but to the interest of others. So here's a dilemma. How in the world can Jesus be seeking his joy and also simultaneously be considering others' interests more important than, more important than his own? How does that work? You thought about that before? Maybe not. How can Jesus be truly selfless and yet the Bible says he was seeking his joy. Well, Jesus was seeking the joy of being reunited with the Father. And that joy of being reunited with the Father was the motivation for why he willingly laid down his life in loving service of others. Jesus put the good of others ahead of his own good because of the joy that awaited him. And therefore, when we seek our greatest joy in God we will find our greatest satisfaction because we were made for that. And it is our joy then that the love will flow out of us into others, resulting in glad service of others. The most important service of others is helping other people find their greatest joy and their greatest satisfaction in God alongside of you. That's why Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more happy for those who give than to receive, the word is. Our greatest joy should be God. And our greatest motivation in serving others is that the others we serve would find their greatest joy in God as well. And their greatest need is God. And therefore, our greatest joy being God will be turning to the others who have need of God and joyfully saying, there's God. It's my joy to show you him because he's my joy. You and I can't commend things to other people that we are indifferent towards. Think of how stupid that would look. You're at a restaurant and you ask the waiter or waitress, what is good here? Oh, I guess the chicken's good. And you're like, really that good? Man, give me two. But if the waiter says, oh, you know what's good? The chicken here is awesome. Matter of fact, now that you bring it up, I think I'm going to get something to take home tonight. It's, oh, man, it's so good. Nobody would go, oh, really? It doesn't sound very good. We would say, whoa, your delight in the chicken is of interest to me. And if you really like the chicken, you want this person to eat the chicken. 
and your joy would be in their joy in their delight of the chicken that you also delight in. You get it? (laughs) And this was the motivation that Paul had for ministry. In Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul is deliberating in his own mind what he should do because he's in Roman prison and he's awaiting his execution, but he has an out. He could make an appeal to Caesar and get out of prison and and therefore continue to live on earth, helping the churches and ministering to them whichever way he can. And so he makes this realization that he's going to remain on earth and he's going to make his appeal to Caesar. And when he recognizes this, he says this in verse 25 of Philippians 1. I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and look at this and continue with you all for your progress and Say it, joy in the faith. Paul's motivation for ministry was the joy of the peoples he ministered to. And the joy Paul was minister, or hoping to minister in their hearts was not entertainment. Paul was trying to minister an abiding, satisfying, everlasting, inconsolable, inconceivable, inexpressible kind of joy that leaves you speechless. And that is what we're supposed to be doing. That is what we are earnestly praying for. This is Global Outreach Sunday. I want to have a slant of missions in this. And we need to have this coursing through our minds as we think about what I'm going to speak on. Psalm 67 verse 3. This is a prayer Well, the psalmist writes, let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That needs to be our earnest prayer for the nations, that the nations, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group will find their greatest joy, that they would be a people who are glad in God. John Piper has helped me understand this so much when he writes this in, his, in a, a book that he wrote on missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. And therefore, missions aims to bring the nations into white, hot enjoyment of God. That is what our purpose is as a church, is is to help people to come to saving knowledge of Jesus, to find their greatest joy in God. But people are too easily pleased, as C.S. Lewis says. It's not that God finds our desires too strong. He finds our desires too weak. We're fooling about, as C.S. Lewis says, with drink and sex and play when God is offering us complete and utter joy and satisfaction in him. No, I'm good with that. I just want a new car. No, I don't want an inexpressible eternal joy. Man, I just really want to paint the outside of my house. And so we are commissioned as a church to help people find their greatest joy in in God. Remember, if I find a desire in me that nothing in this world can satisfy, it means that I'm meant for another world. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get through our minds is look at your desires. Nothing in this world will satisfy. Only God does. And so we're going to turn to Acts chapter 10 now. And I want to show you how through Everyday, ordinary hospitality, God performs extraordinary work. Through everyday, ordinary hospitality, the extraordinary power of God is displayed. Now, here's the thing. If I said, church, are you, do we want to do great things for God? Do we want to do big things for God? Do we want to have an impact in the world? Do we want to transform culture? Do we want to reach the nations? And everyone would say, yeah. And then immediately in our imaginations, this is what we're thinking. Man, we got to do big programs. We got to do some big stuff. What's the biggest tent we can rent? Let's rent it. Let's get, let's let's do huge things. Big concerts. Let's rent out stadiums. 
And the reason I think we think that is because we equate when God does big things, he only does them through big means. Have we forgotten the New Testament? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Well, that's not very powerful. No. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it in his joy, he sold all that he had and bought that field. That's it? Huh. You see, in our minds, we think the only way to truly have an impact is if we did big, exciting, famous things. Unless we are a part of the fastest growing whatever, whatever else we do is insignificant. And I'm here to push back on that and say baloney. Time and time again, the Bible shows us that what God prefers is that we do Small things, oftentimes overlooked, and we commit to them for the long haul. And those are the things that causes an explosion of multiplication in the world. Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements in their book, The Easiest Way to Change the World, which is the book I recommend, they write, too many of us mistakenly think that in order to do something significant, it has to be big, dif different, drastic, or extraordinary. It has to be something that doesn't happen on a Thursday because Thursdays, well, they're just Thursdays. Nothing could be meaningful that happens on a Thursday. Nothing happens in ordinary lives, in ordinary days, in an ordinary way. That's what the world tells us. But they write... The world could use more ordinary Christians opening their ordinary lives so that others might see what an ordinary life in light of the gospel actually looks like. My house looks more like that. And we often think we can't be hospitable. We can't welcome people into our lives until we get our act together and clean ourselves up. We can't have people in our homes until we get our house, you know, fixed up. We got to paint the inside. We got to get a new farm table. Got to make sure we get everything set because, man, if they came in and saw toys on the ground, what would they think? They think you're regular old people. That's what. And we believe that God can only do extraordinary things through or extraordinary means. And I'm here to tell you, no, God does extraordinary things through everyday ordinary things like hospitality in your house, even with the laundry basket on your dining table. That's okay. Let me show you from Acts chapter 10. Verses 1 through 6 is where we start. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms, that means he gave offerings, generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God that came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he, the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now I want you to understand this is an amazing thing. This vision happens. God starts talking to Cornelius. Awesome. But the background of this is pretty interesting. Cornelius is just at home and Peter's just at some dude's house named Simon. Every day, ordinary, just basic. And then Cornelius sends uh, a couple people and a soldier to Joppa to go retrieve Peter. And this is what happens in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That is a vision. He saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. By the way, Peter was hungry. He was praying, went up on a rooftop, fell asleep while he was praying. People were cooking downstairs. Ordinary, 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 ordinary. You seeing the trend here? Let's keep going. And in this were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again in a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing well, was taken up at once 
to heaven. So Peter has a vision. It's really a, a vision about table fellowship. That is, God is telling Peter previously, you weren't allowed to eat these things according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament, but I'm telling you now, I'm calling these things clean and you need to eat them. You need to do this. And Peter is perplexed. He's like, what in the world's going on here? I don't, I don't get this. God's talking to me about eating reptiles. I, I mean, what? Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. Did you see Peter's response in verse 23? He has this amazing vision. These people are sitting outside, Peter! And he's like, huh, the Holy Spirit tells him you need to go outside and meet these men. And you need to do whatever it is they say. You need to go with them without hesitation. So Peter walks down and says, I'm Peter. Who are you and what do you want? And they tell him. And so Peter says, ah, why don't you come in and be my guest? Hospitality. Do you see it? Peter invites them into his life and into his space. And what's amazing is when we read this, we, t we tend to just kind of like dismiss it or like, oh, that's that culture. That's, that's them. See, we live in America and we don't have to be hospitable because we have like a ring, you know, doorknob thing. And, and so, or doorbell. So, so that way we can see the creepy people who are at our door and then we can look at our iPad and mock them and scoff at them or yell at them, get off my porch, you know, whatever. And we do all that we can to protect and isolate ourselves from people because, you know what, well, we're a different culture. And so many of us think, ah, this is good for Peter and this is good for people like that, but this isn't for us. And I would say, hold up. Are you telling me that the universal principle that all Christians should practice hospitality doesn't apply to you because you live in a different culture? That's not the way you do things? How about this? Change the way you do things. How about be countercultural? Because the Bible says this, and if we are claiming that God is our authority and that the Bible has authority over us, then we need to go do it as well. We don't need to make excuses. We need to find ways of, to, to be obedient. And so Peter does this. He welcomes these guys in. Now, mind you, this is important because these are Gentiles. That means they're non-Jewish people. And so Peter gestures them in and he spends the day with them, maybe uh, the night and, and part of the next day. He just offers ordinary hospitality. Look at this in verse 24. They come, they leave, and eventually they make their way to Joppa, verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. I love this because Cornelius got this vision, and he said, man, I'm, I sent this, the, the, these people out to go get Peter. Peter's going to come, and when Peter comes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm, I'm to call I know they didn't call back then, but, but roll with me. And I'm going to call my friends and my family. You got to come over. For what? This dude named Peter's coming over. To do what? I don't know yet. But it's going to be pretty cool. You should come over. And so he has lots of friends and family there. And I love this. In verse 23, Peter says that, or it says that some of the brothers from Joppa had accompanied him. And so Peter doesn't come by himself. Instead, he looks at some of the brothers from the church and he goes, hey, come with me. And I've had people over the weeks that we've been doing hospitality tell me, Phil, I can't be hospitable because I can't fit it into my schedule. What can I do? And I said, here we go. The easiest thing is to look at your life and to look at the things that you do kind of habitually. Like what are patterns of your life in increments of one day, one week, and one month? Just look at that. What do you do on a given day? What do you do in a given week? What do you do pattern-wise in a given month? And find those things you do pretty much regularly and then ask yourself the next question, how can I invite somebody into that thing? So I'll give you an example. I eat lunch on Thursdays and most people I know do too. <laughs> and so on Thursdays, I, I usually have lunch with staff people here at the church. I figure I'm going to eat lunch 
They're going to eat lunch. Instead of us eating lunch apart from each other, let's eat lunch together. It did not add a single minute to my schedule. It did not add another thing I needed to calendar. I was already doing it. They were already doing it. Hey, come do it with me. You, I with you. We'll eat together. It'd be great. And once a month, I try to meet up and have lunch with one of the brother pastors in our community. And so I know that I have to eat lunch. I know that he has to eat lunch. Why don't we eat lunch together? And so this past week, a brother pastor in the area and I, we sat down and we ate lunch. Why? Because we're brothers in the Lord, fellow pastors, we want fellowship. I didn't have to schedule it out and change everything. I just was doing what I always do and I just invited somebody to go with me. So Peter is going on his way to Caesarea and instead of being isolated and going by himself, which is a really individualistic thing, instead he looks at the brothers of the church and he says, hey, come with me. Hospitality. You're inviting somebody into your life. Some of you wrote that down. Others of you, hopefully, you understand that. So that means we do not have an excuse anymore that we can't be hospitable because we don't have the time. You can, you do, do it. Verse 25, Peter enters this house which is filled with Cornelius and his family and friends. He met him. Cornelius met him, fell down on his, at his feet and began to worship him. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Like, what are you doing? And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Oh, I love it. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. I like this because Peter says it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. Now, this is a thing that you may not understand. There is no law in the Old Testament that prevents a Jew from associating with the Gentile or for visiting them. So why in the world is Peter saying it's unlawful for me to do this? It's because there is a social stigma. There's a societal I hate to use big words, but it's, it's one of those things that's frowned upon. Like, you shouldn't do that. We as Christians have those things, you know. Like, we as Christians, don't listen to secular music. You'll, you know, lose your soul or something. It's not in the Bible, but it's something that we think is good to do. And so we command people to do it. So this is not in the Bible that Jews should not associate with Gentiles or visit them. This is just a social pressure. It's kind of a custom. And Peter is making sure that everyone who's gathered together in Cornelius' house is understanding what's happening. That because of Christ and because of the gospel, Peter now is doing a countercultural thing, a very shocking thing. He is basically bucking the culturally defined barriers that keep people isolated from one another and is instead being brought into this house of a Gentile. And in that moment, what Peter is displaying is the power of Christ to transcend all culturally defined barriers that keep people away from each other. This is a moment that we shouldn't overlook. This is incredible. Something is happening here. God is beginning to do a new work. Where people, culturally speaking, were like, oh, I can't associate with them because they're of a different race. I can't associate with them because they're of a different socioeconomic background. I can't, I can't relate to them because they have a different lifestyle. I can't do that. I, I got to stay away from them. All of a sudden, God's starting to do something new in Acts 10. And so Peter says, what do you want me to do? And then verse 30 to 33, Cornelius explains what happens. And then Cornelius says at the end of verse 33, we're all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord to say. I think it comes from Luke chapter 24. The command is preach the gospel. And that's exactly what Peter does. Verse 34. So Peter opens his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news, and the Greek word there is ungelion, which is gospel, preaching the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. 
You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is a profound sermon on the gospel. It touches on the life of Jesus. It touches on the death of Jesus by crucifixion. It touches on the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that there were countless eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Historically affirmed, these things really happen. (laughs) And the response is that we should repent and believe in Jesus. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, all of us. And yet God has come to rescue us through Jesus. You know what's amazing, brothers and sisters? In the Bible, in the New Testament, the word, the power of God, that phrase, the power of God, is referred only to two things. The power of God is only referred to two things in the New Testament. Number one is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second one, the gospel. That's it. Nothing else in the New Testament is ever defined as or identified as the power of God outside of God except for the gospel. What I'm trying to say is this. I've had people say, Phil, you talk about the gospel all the time. I go, I know because it is the power of God. And if I want people to fall in love with Jesus, I have to preach the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. There is no power in the music. There is no power in the lights. There is no power in the smoke machines. There is no power in us being entertained. There's no power in my jokes. The power is in Jesus being faithfully preached. So watch the power of God on display. Verse 44, look in your Bibles, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, what things? The gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Don't miss that, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit fell on the place in which the gospel was being preached. That's why at Golden Hills, we want to preach the gospel because we want the Holy Spirit to fall on this place. And so people ask me, Phil, is your church a spirit-filled church? And I go, yes. And they say, how do you know? Because we preach the gospel here. And they go, yeah, but, 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 but. And what they want to know is the other stuff. Are people falling on the ground? Are people rolling down the aisles? (laughs) And I would say, look, the Holy Spirit fell when the gospel was preached. And it says in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, you receive the Holy Spirit when you hear the gospel preached and you believe it. So my thought is, if I can't get the Holy Spirit in any other way than through the gospel being heard and preached and and, and believed in, then we need to preach the gospel. All right. That's not in my notes. And now I just wasted two minutes. (laughs) Yep. Verse 45. And look at this, the believers from among the circumcised, that is from the Jews who accompanied uh, Peter, they were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, and by the way, that's the verse for why. Anyways, all right, that's another sermon. Verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I love the end of that. What is the proper response for hearing the gospel preached and believed, receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized? What's the proper response? Hospitality. For real? It's just a regular dude named Cornelius in his regular old house with his regular old friends and family, with regular old Peter, just hanging out. 
And then all of a sudden in this ordinary setting of hospitality, and I imagine that it, there was probably kids there and it wasn't like everyone was like, oh yes, we are just here to listen. <laughs> People are probably walking around, getting mud in the, in the house. You know how that is. And in that ordinary setting, God performs an extraordinary thing. That is, he is faithful to his word. When the word goes out, it never returns void. And this ordinary hospitality setting is where God makes an incredible, extraordinary work. That's awesome. And what I would conclude then is hospitality is the power of the gospel made visible. Let me say that again. Ordinary just hospitality is how the power of the gospel is made visible. Oh, oh. Let me show you how. Have you ever thought about what in the world was going through Peter's mind after this event? Like, did he write in his little prayer journal, preach the gospel, power of God descended, baptized many, stayed for a few days? Or was there something else going on? Was he like, this was amazing. Well, we don't have to ask and wonder. We see it in Acts 15. There's a false teaching that has arisen. And the false t teaching is simply this. You don't need faith in Jesus alone to be saved. You need faith in Jesus plus circumcision. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church to go discuss with the elders and the apostles what to do about it. And so they come in verse 4 to Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church, hospitality. And the apostles and the, by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers among the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so there's a controversy. How is Peter going to respond? Here's how Peter responds. He simply recounts what happened at Cornelius' house. Look at this in verse 6. Look in your Bible. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After they, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see, this may seem like a theological issue that they're debating or a religious issue. But if you pay close attention, you'll realize this is a racial issue, a social issue and a customs issue. Because the question is, we are Jews and they're not. So how should we treat them? How should we welcome them into the church? Peter declares that the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles through him. And the preaching of the gospel that he did in Cornelius' house is the example that in the church... The dividing walls of hostility that Pastor David read from Ephesians 2 have been broken down and the previous cultural barriers between Jew and Gentile, racially and religiously speaking, are now totally demolished and Jew and Gentile are made one. And that occurred by the Holy Spirit. So whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, the five solas. The church draws the conclusion in Acts 15 that the gospel overcomes racial divisions, social divisions, and customary divisions, which means that the church is to be the place where we see the counter-cultural, culturally transcendent, and culturally transformative power of the gospel in full display. Let me put it simply. The church is the place where the watching world who has categories in their mind that people of different races and socioeconomic backgrounds and educations and different customs and all that kind of stuff, they shouldn't be together. 
But when they look at the church and they see that in fact, these people are together, they are left wondering, how is that possible? How is it possible that former enemies are now family and they treat each other as such? And the answer is, it's the power of the gospel. For the power of the gospel is the preaching that Jesus Christ bled on Calvary's cross and through his blood, he purchased a people called the church from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And he has made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God forever. And so in the church, what we are supposed to manifest to a watching world is this is what you can expect in the new heavens and new earth, which is called heaven. You can expect that people from all kinds of walks of lives and language and people of different cultures, we're going to be together. And what are we going to do? We're going to be in fellowship with one another. But most importantly, we're going to worship God. And people should see this. People should see this manifested in the church because when we do this as a church where we're transcending cultural barriers and divisions, people who are watching will say, the love is there, therefore God must be there. They're true disciples. We see this in Galatians 3. The apostle Paul is talking about the hope of the gospel and about faith in Jesus. And he writes this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. In other words, those of you who believed in the gospel and have been baptized, you put on Christ. That is, you have a new identity. You are the body of Christ. You are the church. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. If that's true, that you and I who have been baptized, who believed in the gospel, that we are the church, then it means there is neither Jew nor Greek. That's race. There is neither slave nor free. That's socioeconomics. There is neither male nor female. That's hierarchical gender sexuality kind of stuff. And he says, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the primary identity that you and I should take when we view ourselves and each other is not to regard one another according to the cultural, societal, identifying barriers and markers, but we are to regard one another by what Jesus has done and what he says about us, namely, we are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. The barriers of race, the barriers of economic and social standing, the barriers of gender and what have you have been broken down by Jesus Christ. And so all are welcomed. And you are welcomed into the church through faith and repentance in the gospel. So the gospel becomes the identity marker what that means is when you and I look at each other, the first thought that crosses our mind when we see each other is not, wow, here is somebody of a different ethnicity or culture, somebody who's poorer than I or richer than I. The first thing that goes through our mind ought to be this. This person is made in the image of God. They're being renewed in the image of God through the gospel. Jesus bought this person and has adopted him by his love. They're my brother. They're my sister. They're my family. That's our identity. And that's how we should treat one another. And that's how the Bible describes it. I just have to end with this in Colossians chapter 3. It says in your notes, Colossians 2. Oh, I gave it away. But it's Colossians 3. And we're told in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the way we treat each other needs to be informed by the gospel. Because your brother and sister in Christ is being renewed in the image of Jesus, you can't lie to them. How dare you deceive a brother and sister for whom Christ died? And then it goes on and said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, passionate hearts. So if you want to know how to be hospitable, bingo. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in the one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we would live this way, where we actually practice the one another's explicitly mentioned here, the watching world will see that the manner in which we live with one another in the church is mind-blowing because it's countercultural. And what we can say is, it's only possible because Christ bought me and bought them. And so I would just simply conclude that the church is meant to display the power of the gospel to break down the barriers that keep people isolated from one another and unites them in the one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one gospel, one Jesus. And that oneness is going to promote harmony and love. And what's going to end up happening is people were going to say, I want to be in that community. And we can say you can't be in the community unless you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Love it. Let me end with this because I'm over time. We the church, we display the power of the gospel. First, the power of the gospel that saves people from their sins. It's the power of the gospel that conforms enemies into family. It's the power of the gospel that transforms human hearts. And here's the mind-blowing thing of all. Belief in the gospel is the very power of God that gives us the love that we need to serve others for God's glory. And we can, we, can, we can spend ourselves, sacrifice ourselves, get messy, because we can depend on God's promise that he will supply us with all that we need so that the work he calls us to will be accomplished, that the love of God will be displayed in and through us, that God would get the glory and we would get the joy. So Father, do this for us, we pray. God, make us a church in our community that is faithful to your word. But more than that, we are also faithful with what your word says by way of obedience, that we will look for ways, seek for ways to leverage our resources in loving service to others for your glory. God, help us to do this because there are so many societal and cultural barriers that tell us we ought not to associate with certain kinds of people. May we remember the gospel that those things have been broken down in Jesus. He is our peace. The blood of Jesus has been poured out for many. You have ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And you have assembled a people called the church. And so, God, would you display your love for the nations in and through Golden Hills Community Church. God, do this for us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.